welcome to it, guys. I know it's, uh, that's like I said every week, it's a strange season. It's just what it is. It's, uh, it's what we have. We're all going through it. We're all dealing with it. And, uh, you know, it makes Sunday morning that much more special to me, I think, because we know, um, thanks to technology, we're still able to gather around the message, right? Um, but we went for a while without being able to meet. And for Christians in America, it felt like forever, okay? Um, places in other parts of the world, they probably dealt with that a little bit more. But I want to welcome you all here. Uh, thanks for being here um, in the room. Those of you online, um, I know that's, we're, we're gathered together still. I think God has something really special for us this week. And I think when we um, quiet our hearts, when we sit before him, he reveals things to us. It's not um, a fancy thing that I get to do and you all don't, or a pastor does, but uh, when believers seek communion with the Lord, it happens. And so, um, as we go, I want you to know that um, that's something I've been praying for this week, and even now in your heart, if there is anxiety, if there is fear, if there is concern about something, I know in my life, that's a, a, a weak point that the enemy tries to exploit. And so I have to give that to the Lord um, recurringly, over and over and over again. So if that's keeping you from hearing today, um, don't wait. Acknowledge it right now in your heart. Say, Lord, um, I'm here. I want to be at church with my family. I want to hear your word, um, but I'm worried about this. Or this is eating it up. Um, give that to him right now. You know, this isn't going to be a discipleship message per se, but I want to lay down some groundwork for you, um, some discipleship 101, if you will. Without the groan, there's no glory. Without the hurt, there's no healing. Without death, there's no life. Without loneliness, there's no joyous communion. You know, the beauty of the gospel is that um, when our flesh dies, Jesus replaces it with something greater. One of my favorite verses is Galatians 2.20. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, um, in Christ, a groan, a hurt, a wound that we have, um, it can lead to glory. Hardship, suffering, pain, all of those things season the believer. And sometimes we wish he would spare them from us because they're hard to deal with. But in reality, uh, when you're experiencing that, he's given you, some, he's given you some, some DNA to handle it the next time. He's given your spiritual immune system something to fight antibodies with. He seasons us, he prepares us, he refines us. Yeah, don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? Uh, still in some more words, but um, at the end of the day, discipleship, the gospel, they are transactional. Okay, that doesn't mean that we earn it. That doesn't mean that I pay for it myself. But there was a transaction that took place. Can we agree with that? Jesus paid my way. Jesus took care of that transaction. And then when I want to walk in new life with him, there's a transaction. I give him my old, dead flesh, and he replaces it with something better. There's a transaction, something swapped. Jesus tells us in Luke 9, 23, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If you want this, you have to get that's the principle we see over and over again. 
At the end of the day, we see the gospel's transactional. Death is traded in order to bring forth new life. And though this grace is free to us, and we celebrate that often as we should, it was not free for Jesus. He paid a very high price for that. And I think one of our shortcomings today, I'm going to say us collectively, so I'm not singling anybody out. I'm not even saying the church in America. That's too, too broad. But what I see when I look at our culture, when I spend time with our students, when I see my own heart, I think one of our shortcomings is that as a church, we produce lazy, soft, untrained, and apathetic Christians. We want it all. We want the glory. We want the blessing. We want to be on the winning team without any sacrifice. I want the glory of the Lord without any of the weight. I want the freedom without having to have ever carried the burden. I want it microwaved. I want it Uber Eats to my door. I want curbside. I want it on my patio. I don't even want to see the person. I just want to take it. And if anything, the last four or five months here has expedited that mindset. Now I don't even, if I want to get uh, a sandwich. Last night, Hannah and I got, what was it? Jersey Mike's? It was Jersey Mike's. I don't know. Mike, Mike hit, hit, hit six buttons. And I drove to the store and just walked in. And they said, are you Jeff? And I nodded. And they handed me a bag of food. <laughs> Spiritual maturity doesn't come that way. No, it requires um, something of us. But we want it all. We want our, our eternity secured without any hindrance, without any impediment to what we want to do in our life. I want it, my choices here to not affect that. I want them to be separate. Some people say, they call that having your cake and eating it too, right? Um, discipleship doesn't work like that. And I think some people look at us, maybe they look at um, people in general, you could say that convenience is an American God right now. We worship convenience. If that makes our life easier, I will give whatever to it. And if someone else's need or someone else's request or something they ask me to do, if that interferes with my convenience, I don't want it. I don't want any part of it. If they are hurting, if they are in need, and the good Christian thing to do is to help them, we understand that. And if it's someone you know really well, maybe it's hard to get out of. Those are the people you help move on the weekend, okay? You can't say no. <laughs> Uh, no, but from a distance, the further off they are, the easier it is to figure out what they did to put them in that spot. Well, he shouldn't have made that choice. He's dealing with consequences. I'll pray for him. I'll, I'll put you on my, my prayer email. But when we get close to people, are we willing to suffer or are we willing to bear burdens with one another? You know, when someone loses a loved one, when something tragic happens, verses like uh, Jeremiah 29:11 or Romans 8:18 or Romans 8:28, they get thrown around. I imagined it kind of like someone, like a theology, like a, a grenade of Bible verses, they and they throw it into the room that you're hurting in, and they leave. They're not going to be there when it detonates. They're not going to be there when it gets messy. But hey, God's promise says that all things work together for good. And I'm not dismissing. The thought that we should use scripture. No, I know. And we cling to that. Because those are promises of God. But I think whenever we look at them in a shallow way, whenever we um, try to use them like theological band-aids on really big gaping wounds, it may not click for that person. It might do more harm than good. 
Oh, so-and-so got diagnosed with cancer. God knows the plans he has for it. He does. Still stinks. Still hurts. But we tell him, I'm here for you, you know? Read this verse. Feel better. Get over it. We all have issues, you know? It's not just you. My thought today um, is that a lazy faith equals a lack of compassion. Because compassion takes work. It requires something of because compassion moves you. Compassion moves you to action. And so um, when you see that person on the corner and they look like they're destitute and hungry, if you let compassion move you, then maybe you give them $5 and you don't know if they're going to buy like a 40-ounce with it or actually a meal. But compassion moves you. So if I just block compassion out and I don't let it move me, I don't look at the people who are hurting because then I know, guess what, the Holy Spirit is going to urge me to do something. So a lazy faith equals a lack of compassion. I think it's easier to do with people that we don't know. We see people on TV that are hurting. People complain. Their things aren't fair. That things have happened and it's not right. And we don't know them and we say, look, they just need... Now this is America. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Godspeed. But deep faith has deep compassion. And I get it, we can't help everybody. But we let the Holy Spirit lead, some powerful things just might happen. You know, we might demean, we might belittle, we might kind of laugh off that person's groan. The very reason I'm calling you the groans because the passage in Romans 8 we're looking at today talks about groans to glory. Okay, groan is the, the cry of the person who is hurting, who is without, they are mourning. It's a groan. Not even like an audible complaint. It's just emitted out of pain. So sometimes we look at other people and we're like, man, like, they think that's a big deal. Wait till they have a second kid or whatever. I don't know. Whatever we compare with people. In reality, though, a lot of times, like, we wouldn't willingly trade places with that person. I would say this is how they can fix it or this is what they did to get there, or this is what they need to do to get over it. And I glaze over their hurts, but in reality, um, I play it off as it's not a big deal, but if you ask me if I want to trade places with them, usually I don't. Because deep down we recognize that something's not right, that something someone has gone without, that there's a need there. I don't want to experience it firsthand, and I definitely don't want to hear about it. When God works, though, when he moves in our lives from groans to glory, we sing that song a few weeks ago, Graves into Gardens. God has the power to do that. We witness it, um, people's testimonies share it, but it, is, it can be a messy process. It can be a hard process. And so um, division is what occurs when I care more about being right or proving my point than I do about the other man and his experiences. So I'll hear that. Division is what occurs when I care more about my pride when I care more about my point than I do the other person in their um, complaint or their issue. Whether or not it's valid, if I can prove that they made a mistake or that they did something um, foolish to get there, then my compassion can be turned down. And I don't have to feel for them. But that's what leads to division, because we're not trying to understand. We're trying to prove. we got winners, we got losers. I know you guys know this, and it's probably been going on for longer than I've been alive, but it's, it's rearing its head again 
uh, we live in a truly divisive age. Seems like there's an argument about everything. I, uh, just before service, I asked Mike Eaton if he was drinking Dr. Pepper, and he said, oh, no, 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 Coke. <laughs> That's a debate, Coke versus Dr. Pepper, Pepsi versus Diet Pepsi. And um, then we see against real deep issues that go back hundreds and hundreds of years, people have differences of opinions on. Politics, there in everybody's mind, is a right answer and a wrong answer. Sports, there's a right team, there's a wrong team. We live in a truly divisive age. And don't be foolish enough to think that, that can't happen in the church because the devil feasts upon division. That's his favorite thing. And so whenever I get puffed up with pride and decide that I need to be right more than I need to be welcoming, or I need to be, more, I need to be right more than they need to be accepted, um, we leave people out. We leave people behind. We segment up the body of Christ, and we get left with just a portion of what God had planned. It's not complete. Knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Discipleship is transactional. We're going to be in Romans 8 today. We're going to read um, verses 18 through 28. We're going to go through. We're going to unpack it a little bit. I think Paul does something really profound in these passages. He covers a lot more ground than we're going to be able to in our short time today. But there's something I think uh, made sense. It clicked for me in this era that we're in, in this day and age, of how we can help either assist other people while they're grieving or while we can grieve. And honestly, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of times we do both at the same time, don't we? We have our own personal lament, but people that we know also are grieving or lamenting. And it could be, it could be loss of future. It could be life dreams not panning out the way you wanted them to. And it can be heavier and heavier, like a loss of a parent or a spouse or um, in a strange relationship with a child, a lot of times we have our own issues, our own struggles in our heart, while we help other people through stuff, correct? We don't get to choose just one at a time, unfortunately, or zero at a time in a perfect world. And so Paul addresses this. I'll start in verse 18. We're going to read through 28. And we're going to pray together. So let's read first, though. He says, For I consider this, that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of corruption into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. And not only that, but we ourselves have the spirit of the first fruits. We also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now this hope we were saved, now in this hope we were saved, yet hope that is seen is not hope. Because who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait with patience. In the same way, the spirit also joins to help in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken And he also searches for hearts. He also searches the hearts, knows the Spirit's mindset, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Verse 28, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Would you all pray with me? 
Heavenly Father, as we look at this, I pray that you would move through this room. Father, come through our hearts. and I know that there is grieving taking place in this room. I know that there are unspoken groans. I know that there are people without, people in need. God, I know you know that. I pray that you would shine your light. You would magnify that need. And God, as we realize our need, that we would, we would begin to, to give you access to trust you to meet that need, God. I pray as we unpack and, and look through the scripture that you would convict us of sin and pride in our life. God, that you would restore our compassion for um, our neighbor, for each other, that we'd be a church that, um, that chooses people over pride, God. That you will work through it today. We love Jesus and we ask all to your name. Amen. Verse 18, Paul starts off and he says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time, um, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. That's a powerful verse. That's something we can, we can cling to. But what I want you guys to realize is that before Paul talks about um, this uncomparable glory that we have waiting for us, he acknowledges something. He's considering something. It means he's taking time to think about it. The sufferings of this present time. That's a powerful thought there. Because a lot of times as Christians, we don't want to get stuck in suffering. We just want to think about, like, the good stuff. But Paul is a suffering Christian writing this letter to a church of other suffering Christians. They get it. They feel it. He doesn't glaze over it. He doesn't tell them um, not to worry about it because Jesus has something better. He says, no, um, I'm considering these sufferings. I realize what you're going through, and I acknowledge that it's hard. Have you guys ever been having a, a bad day or you had a frustrating experience at work? And, and maybe you, you call a friend on your way home or you talk to your spouse when you get home and they start offering you like solutions to how to fix it. And you're like, man, like, it's just, that person's really frustrating. I have a hard time with it. It's like, well, have you thought about talking to them? All like the simple stuff and you're like, yeah, I thought about it. I'm just mad. <laughs> Has that ever happened? Yeah, Paul could do that here, but he says, um, no, I get it. I've considered these sufferings too. Sometimes one of the most powerful things you can do to grieve with someone who is grieving is just to validate their pain. Validate that experience. And it's something that's tough to do because as we grow, we compare things to what we've experienced. And I've learned this a lot as a uh, youth pastor because they'll be like, I wrote this girl a note and she said she didn't like me. And it's heartbreaking for them. And I'm like, oh my gosh, right? But you stop and you realize, and I like, time travel in my mind back to 12-year-old Jeff. And that stuff crushed me. Right? You identify where they're at and you say, no, um, just because that seems childish to me doesn't mean it's not valid to them. Paul validates their suffering. He says, hey, you're going through it. I know that because I am too. He acknowledges the reality of the present sufferings. 
And even though the same sentence, he points them to what's to come, he doesn't skip over it. He doesn't leave them hanging. He acknowledges it. He mourns with those who mourn. I think we have to be careful not to satisfy the desire to correct people when they bring hurt to us. If you serve in the youth ministry and a 14-year-old comes up and they explain something to you or like a fight they have with their parent, oftentimes, spoiler alert, the parent is right. <laughs> but guess what? Uh, sometimes it's more important for me to say, hey, I'm sorry that happened and I know you're frustrated. I still back up parents without saying, you know, you should just listen to your mom and dad. Stop being a dummy. Sometimes that's the right answer to you. But, um, no, you can validate it while pointing them to something better. So don't satisfy the desire to correct right in the moment. Hear them out. Let them have their moment with you. And then you can teach from there. Teaching opportunities come if you spend time with people. That's another secret of discipleship is it doesn't have to be a scheduled time on a calendar. It's when you spend time with people, when you rub shoulders with them, they just might start to look like you. Spend time with them, listen to them, hear them out. Like I said, I'm not condemning the use of Scripture in someone's life if they bring issues to you. I think that's a really cool thing to do, to have people that point you back to Jesus. But I think our culture for so long has been fostering these images of perfection that aren't really real that we feel pressure to perform. So we feel pressure to, even if it's a garbage weekend in the Watts household, Sunday morning we're going to be there, like clean, teeth brushed, clothes straight, right? We're a great family. And there's a part of it where it's like, yeah, I get presenting your best for people. But that, pr- that produces pressure. So when we try to convince people that we have a perfect church without any issues, or we have a perfect marriage without any issues, we think we need that for people because um, if they see our leaks, they won't want to be a part of it. If they see what we really like, they won't want to be a part of it. We think, would they come if they knew that we had issues? Would they come if they knew that this was going on or that this was something our church dealt with or struggled with? You want to know why I think they would come, guys? It's because they would fit right in. Broken people need other broken people to worship Jesus with. That's the church. They're not looking for people made whole. They're looking for people who are honest. For people to say, hey, I see your pain. I validate it, and I know the Bible speaks to it, but I get that it hurts in the moment. Our first year of marriage, this happened. Or with our first kid, when they turned 13, whatever it is, you can validate that experience while pointing them to something greater. You don't have to just negate the negative the powerful thing about our faith is that it can handle that. It can handle the lows. It can handle the hardship. It can handle the groan of life. You know, when I suffer, when I'm grieving, or when I join with others in their grieving process, it's a reflection that something greater is coming. It's a reflection of that when I join with people and they're grieving. You know, simultaneously, the promises of God, they validate both our hurt, they validate our need, but they also magnify his ability to comfort and provide. It's two edges of the same blade. So for me to be a good Christian, I don't have to say I don't have that need or I don't have that hurt. 
in reality, a full circle says, uh, no, I have great needs. I have tremendous hurt. And we have a God that can meet both of those. Amen? That's the power here. For the believer, there's no hurt that won't be healed, nor need that will not ultimately be met. He's bringing us to completion. That doesn't mean that if you pray hard enough, next week he's going to be gone. But when we take a step back and we see the grand scheme of things, the believer is on a trajectory to victory because God is victorious. That's what gives us hope in that time. You know, deep faith recognizes that deep pain reflects our deepest needs. And those needs are only met in the glorious work of Christ Jesus. That's the only place they're met. In another letter to Galatia, Paul tells the church, um, chapter 6, verse 2, he says, carry one another's burdens, and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. I think uh, mourning or grief counts as a burden. It's something that weighs us down. And I know I can't take that from you, but I can join hands with you. I can pray with you. I can cry with you. I can bring you a big old cheesy casserole. (laughs) I can do those things, and in this way, we fulfill the law of Christ. So what that means is whenever I'm not willing, when I'm too selfish to meet other people in their hurt, I'm losing an opportunity to fulfill the law of Christ with that person. When I'm too selfish, when I'm too tired, I am missing out on an opportunity for the church to meet together and fulfill the law of Christ. Here's the cool thing, okay? While we should validate, while we should see, accept, and feel the weight of the world's brokenness, it doesn't have to be where we rest our focus. It doesn't have to be the meditation of our heart. It doesn't have to be the filter by which we see the world. Because it points us to something greater. We don't have to put a Band-Aid on a gaping wound. We can look full view at the groan, at the hurt, at the tragedy. And as Christians, we can take a step back and see that that points us to the glory of the cross. So the first thing we do, guys, is we see the groan. We acknowledge the hurt. Paul validates it. He says, I see what you're going through. I know there's struggles with this age. The second thing he does after seeing that is he sees the glory. Verse 18b, how how does he finish it? He says, the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. If I'm an English teacher, that sentence gets an A plus because it's covering a lot of ground for the narrative today. It starts off saying, I see that it hurt, but guess what? Um, Even though that hurt is there, it exists, it's real. Don't let that be your defining factor. Don't let that be, uh, that's not the period of the sentence. It ends by saying that it's nothing to be compared with the glory that is to come. Jesus is coming back to recover. He's coming back to restore. He's coming back to redeem. That's the glory that is to come. And even now, his spirit is at work through the church to accomplish this. Saints, Braden reminded us of that calling last week. If you're in Christ, you are a saint. And God has work to be done in his church through the saints. So whenever you sign up for meal train, you help carry someone else's burdens, you fulfill the law of Christ. When you call or someone calls you on the phone and you let them 
um, vent and cry and be sad and you praise him at the end, you fulfill the law of Christ. The church has the opportunity to do that. I think that's why it's so critical for us as believers to be willing to meet with our friends, with our neighbors, in the lowest of lows. To mourn with those who mourn. Because we present opportunities for that to happen. You know, we can trust that Jesus is at work because he promises not to leave us how or where he found us. Sometimes that's a hard thing to trust and believe. It's a hard thing to grieve with those who grieve. Um, a few years ago, I had a, a close friend who was going through a divorce, and it was, like most divorces, I'm assuming, messy. Hard, sad. I have a four-year psychology degree, but I'm not married, and I've done no marriage counseling. And he's coming to me for help. And I realized pretty quick, um, Jeff, he doesn't need you to solve his marriage crisis. He doesn't need you to repair it. What he needs is you to point him to the gospel. And it was bad enough one weekend where he called late, and he's like, hey, can I just come spend some time with you tonight? And so he drove down from the Metroplex, and we sat on my apartment balcony for like three hours and just talked. I did a lot of listening. Because like I said, I don't, I don't have the magic answer to, to fix that marriage. That was really hard, but I realized um, the expectation wasn't, hey, Jeff, I'm coming to see you because I need you to fix this. It's, hey, I need somebody to be broken with for a couple hours. I need somebody to be um, mourning, to be grieving with. That was all it was. I prayed with him. I offered biblical advice when the Lord moved. But over that three-hour period, a lot of it was just listening. A lot of it was just sitting together. A lot of it was just um, being available. We don't have to have PhDs in clinical counseling to walk with people through stuff. You just have to have shoes. <laughs> Put them on. Go spend some time with the people who are hurting. You know, Philippians 1.6 reminds us of this. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, you are a work in progress. He's working. You're not left where he found you. And you're not at the finish line yet, but you are in progress. You know, it takes faith to lean in in anticipation. Right? It takes faith to rely on something that's not quite there yet. And that's what we do after we see the groan, the first step. After we see the glory, the second step. We fix our eyes on Jesus. We lean in, we anticipate. That's what the next portion of Scripture is saying after verse 18, is that all of creation is anticipating this point where Jesus is going to come and restore. It's on the balls of his feet. It's ready. And it's tilting forward and forward. Like, and if he doesn't show up, I'm probably going to fall on my face. That's anticipation. I remember growing up, we went to a, uh, like a homeschool co-op, and one Friday, we had, I guess we didn't have time to make lunch or something, and we had an hour for lunch. So my mom was like, hey, as soon as you're out of that class, hustle up, meet me at the car. We're going to have to run and get some lunch real quick and then come back before afternoon classes start. And so um, I'm not in a super big hurry, but like 
I'm walking with my friends out, right? I'm, I'm probably like 10 or 11 years old. And we get to the church parking lot, and it's mostly minivans and Suburbans because homeschooled families are massive, like mine. <laughs> um, no, we get to the parking lot, and I'm looking for my mom's car, and I see a maroon Suburban pull out and drive down the street without me. And I'm like, Taco Bell. <laughs> I'm not going to get lunch. No, um, I was sitting there. I was like, this is before everyone had cell phones. And I was like, I just, does she know I'm not there? Is she going to come back? Anticipation to see. I remember I had a same thing. I was the last one after a baseball practice. And you wait with anticipation for a ride to show up. You know, they said they were coming, but are they really going to do it? That's what creation is doing with the saints. It's saying, hey, our ride said they were coming. It really looks like it's time to go. <laughs> no, it leans in with anticipation. He compares it to labor pains. I don't know what those feel like. I don't want to. But guess what? It's intense. It's anticipation. It's pressure building up until something big happens. We see the groan. We validate. We acknowledge, yeah, things are rough. They hurt. We see Jesus is going to do something about that. We see the glory, so we rely on that. And here's why I think this is important in context, is because once our grief is in full view, once we've acknowledged that, yeah, we're having a hard time with some things, and my kids aren't responding the way I wanted them to, or my marriage isn't going where I thought it would, or my career hasn't taken off yet, we're losing loved ones, it's, it's this pressure, it's this vice. And once we actually acknowledge that grief, once we validate it, the hurt in other people's lives, the promises of God strike differently. Instead of just a, a quick band-aid over a big wound, no, you've taken some time to survey it and you realize, no, I'm a big hurt needs a big promise. It validates it. We understand these promises to a deeper capacity. Verse 28, powerful promise of God. In chapter 8, he says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Those are ones that don't make sense in the moment because we see a lot of things happening that are not good. But wait, I thought he said that all things work together. We're just going to have to trust him with it. We're going to lean in with anticipation. While we used to have the table of contents for God's promises, now we have this full, unabridged copy. It's the promise made large. The aromas, the flavors, the depth of this promise all of a sudden is opened up. I think a cheap view of God's promises are kind of like, um, like cheap, hot tea. Dollar store, even like the dollar store, ever since moving out to like Holland, it's been a lifesaver because I don't have to drive all the way to HEB. But sometimes dollar store stuff is just a little bit cheaper. Nothing wrong with it. But a cheap view of God's promises, um, imagine if I say, like, hey, Terry, would you like some hot tea? And you're like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. And I open up a tea bag, I like rip it open, I take some of the ground, and I start sprinkling them at you. Maybe something like hits you in the eye and it burns for a second or it gets caught in your beard. You see, Maybe if you're lucky, you smell it for just a moment. But you miss the fullness of it. You didn't have tea. You had dirt thrown at you. <laughs> uh, no, there's a fuller experience waiting. 
You know, our friend may not snap in that, that, that moment if we just take these promises of God and throw them across the room. They're not meant just to be um, slapped on a wound real quick. No, they're to be lived, to be tasted. God's promises aren't cheap tea bags. They're not just bumper stickers. They're premium. They're to be tasted. They're to be experienced. And so when the hot water of life, like the hot tears that fall out whenever you can't control it, when they hit the promises of God, something incredible happens. You with me? Something incredible happens when the hot water of grief hits these promises of God. Initially, you see beautiful colors um, changing the water. That clear water is now turning the color of the tea. And after a moment, you smell the fragrances coming off the currents of steam, right? It's changing the cup. All this in an instant, but the powerful thing is the longer the tea bag is steeped, the deeper and the stronger the flavor it produces. When it comes to hot tea, I'm a by-the-box kind of guy, so I like my constant comments, three to five minutes, okay? Not, no longer, because it gets bitter after. It says, don't squeeze the bag. I don't squeeze the bag. Hannah, on the other hand, leaves her tea bag in there for the duration of her tea drinking experience, and it just gets darker and darker and darker. That's how God's promises work. We leave them in there, and we understand them to a deeper and deeper and a richer capacity. After a while, you begin to sip this tea. All of a sudden, the flavor completes what the smell was just telling you about. And you realize, oh, this is some really good tea. On a, on a cold winter day, hot tea warms you, right? You just drink part of a cup, and it feels good. The warm cup in your hands, you drink it, and it's a complete experience. If you drink enough, sometimes it leaves like a dry, weird, bitter taste on your tongue. It sticks with you, though. That's the point. And guess what? If you make a lot of tea, someone comes into your home, they can smell it. It has an aroma. Even the room begins to smell like the tea you're drinking. You know, the room has quite literally changed. When we steep the promises of God in the scalding waters of our life for an extended period of time, it changes the person drinking it, it changes the grief that we're in, and it changes the room we're in. God's promises aren't to be dealt with cheaply or quickly. But whenever they hit the hot water of our life, whenever we spend some time with it, rich things happen. We begin to see them in a fuller experience. Here's what I'm trying to say, y'all. We need to embrace the discomfort that life brings because we realize that it reveals deeper levels of who Jesus is and it makes us look more like him. We don't want it. And I'm not saying, even saying you should ask for it, but whenever hard situations come, thank God for it because guess what? He's using it to shape you. He's using it to season you. He's using it to prepare you. Second thing is embrace those who mourn because they will be comforted and God created us for one another. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, um, people who mourn is one of the groups that Jesus addresses. And he said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You want to know why people mourn? Because they realize they've lost something. They realize they um, are without. They realize they are in need. If we fool ourselves into thinking that we are not in need, then we miss out on the promises of God. We miss out on experience. And the blessed is the person who mourns because they will be comforted. 
so when you go to mourn with people, um, you can remember that promise together that as we mourn, as we grieve, we will be comforted. And God created us for one another in that way. We don't have to hide from it. We can, as believers, embrace the groans of life because in verse 38 and following, this is what Paul says. He says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature um, will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're in Christ, you are secure. Doesn't matter how rough the waters get, doesn't matter how hot the fire feels, uh, there's nothing that can separate you from God's hand. You know, I used to read this verse, and things to come were a lot scarier than things present, and then 2020 happened, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, this is what he meant. <laughs> present things. No, because of Christ, we can see the groan. We can acknowledge it. We don't have to pretend it's not there. We can see hurt in our own life. We can acknowledge it. We can acknowledge hurt in other people's lives. We can grieve with them. After we see the groan, we can see the glory because we know that God isn't going to leave us how he found us. We know that Jesus' work on the cross was restorative in the sense that it's not going to leave us broken. It's working to a plan of completion for all things to be made new. Third thing we can do is lean in with anticipation as the church and fix our eyes on Christ because we realize that nothing else is going to satisfy Nothing else is going to pull us through. Nothing else is going to um, seep its way through my heart into the lives of those around me to comfort them. Only Jesus does that. You know, as the band comes back up, we're going to close here. I want you guys to think about something. You know, maybe you've been hurting. Maybe it's under the surface where no one sees. Maybe you feel like um, to be a good Christian, you have to suppress those things. You have to push them aside and say, no, it's like, God is good all the time. I'm not dealing with it. Um, God is good all the time, and you are dealing with it. If you want to come forward for prayer, for community, give it to him. God sees your groan. He sees the hurt, and he promises glory. Acknowledge it. And trust that the church will lean in with you and anticipate glory to come. Maybe even more concerned about being right lately than being compassionate. Maybe there's a thousand people on Facebook you have to convince um, that they're wrong because they post random things. Maybe pride has robbed you of your ability to love your neighbor well. You understand that. I get it. We're supposed to love our neighbors. But how can I whenever they act like that? Repent. Give it to God. Confess. Trust Him with it. Our call is to bear the burdens of one another. Our call is to mourn with those who mourn. There's not um, points leading up to it. Say, hey, if they vote the way you do, or if they go to the church you do, or if they... Um, if they fit the mold that you do, then bear their burden. That's not how it works. That's not how it works, guys. We're called to mourn with those who mourn. We're called to bear the burdens of those around us. Repent, give it to God to confess.
Let's choose people over programs. Let's choose populations over our pride. Let's embrace the groans because we know that even though we're locked in the battle right now, Jesus is victorious. Amen? And guess what? Because of Christ, so are we. More than conquerors. If you keep reading on in Romans 8, verse 37, he says, No, in all these things we are more than victorious through him who loved us. That's the badge that we can wear on top of all the hurt, of all the shortcomings, of all the shame, of all my pride. That's what I want to cling to. Would y'all pray with me? Um, Father God, this morning as we um, take time to look at your word, Father, as we take time to um, just see areas in, in our heart where, God, maybe we... Um, Maybe we've been hurt or we've had wounds and we, we feel like we couldn't deal with them. God, that you would be the great physician. Father, you would um, clean out any, any spiritual infection that we have. God, that you would heal it the way it needs to be. I pray that you would give us boldness with one another to share hurts, to share needs, to share um, our weakness, God, because in our weakness, um, you're strong and we can trust that. And I pray that um, <clears throat> we remember, God, that discipleship is transactional. And as we give more of ourselves to you, you give more of yourself to us, and we can replace it that way. And so uh, let's pray for anyone in this room, Father, who uh, is hurting and needs prayer that they would come, um, they would find that, that comfort here, God. I pray for anyone who um, has been so focused on being right or winning arguments or proving points that they've missed opportunities to love others well. Um, Father, that you would spotlight that, that you would correct that, and that we'd be people who could stand up for truth and grace. God, that we'd be people that, who, could, who could share the truth and love, that we'd be people who could um, love people before um, feeling the need to correct. God, that we would just be agents of change in this community. Father, start with my, my pride, God. We have nothing to lord over each other, God, because we're all in need. And you tell us that blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. Father, would you comfort us today? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.